So if you have a Bible, I'll invite you to turn to Luke 1. And as you turn to Luke 1, you are turning to a time in history that was a very difficult time for the people of God. And so while you turn to Luke 1, have some, certain, have some thoughts in your mind and have the thought in your mind that if you were a Jew in Palestine in the first century, life was hard. Life was difficult and there were extraordinary challenges. From the outside, you're dealing with Herod the Great, who to you is anything but great if you're a first century Jew. That makes things problematic. From the inside, among the people of God, you have the Pharisees, the right-wingers, not only believing the Bible, but eclipsing the Bible with their own rules and their own regulations and their legalism. So if you're a Jew, you're dealing with the Pharisees. When enough is never enough, they're weighing you down. But not only do you have on the inside the problem of the Pharisees, you have on the left, you have the Sadducees, the theological liberals, anti-supernaturalists, and they're always fighting with the Pharisees. They're denying spiritual things, and you've got to deal with them. You think politics now is bad. This is within the people of God. You'd think they would be uniting and, and uniting and trusting in God, but instead you're not. You're divided because of the Pharisees' legalism and the Sadducees' leftist tendencies. And, and not only that, you're dealing with King Herod the Great, persecution under his thumb. And to make matters worse, maybe worst of all, are the promises of God. The great promises of God. In one sense, it would be better if His promises weren't so great. God has made these great promises throughout the Old Testament to be faithful to His people and to one day provide a Messiah, an anointed deliverer, a great king to save them, to rescue them. And they're undeniably there. You're a first century Jew. That almost makes things worse. Because as your circumstances get worse... Those great promises of God seem to be all the more problematic at times. It's a tough go if you're a first century Jew. Not only that, the last thing said was in Malachi. And by now, that means 400 years of silence. No word from God. It's been a long time since you've heard anything from God. In fact, you haven't heard from God. And not only have you not, your parents haven't. Your grandparents haven't. Your great-grandparents haven't. For a long time. And it might go back even further. God, hello. You know, it's been a while. You haven't called or written. And while that seems disrespectful, you've got to know that there were all kinds of things going on in people's hearts and minds. Yahweh, the great God who is personal, who's transcendent, who's not like all of the other pseudo-deities that people make with their own hands. We're talking about the one true living God and who's made great promises. And we haven't heard from Him. And it doesn't really look like He cares too much based upon the things we're going through. 
trying to lead us into feeling a certain sense of what might have been going on when Luke was written or the time in which it was written. So what's the answer? We all know the answer. If you never, if you don't know what the answer is, you can always say what? Jesus, <laughs> right? Jesus is the answer. And so what we might expect at first is when we open the Bible to Luke chapter one, we say, well, then Jesus comes and everybody's happy. But in reality, before Jesus comes, because remember, Luke wants to give the detailed account and give the full spectrum of the picture before Jesus is the answer. And he is. Good job, class. John is talked about. Because if you're going to have Jesus and you're going to give the full account and you go back to what prophecy has to say, there's going to be somebody who comes before Jesus. As is typical, before you have a king, you have people getting the road ready. And so what we'll do this morning is we'll see that Jesus is the answer, but we're going to see that before Jesus is John, and we're going to hear about his extraordinary birth, and we're going to hear about Jesus' extraordinary birth, and then we'll end by having our faith in Christ, hopefully, stronger, because that's Luke's intent for writing, because we understand the big picture even better, and it's better than we might have even imagined. And so let's jump right in, learning first about John. Learning first about John. And if you don't think John is a big deal, because after all, his name is John, um, think again. We won't go there yet, but remember. We won't go there yet, but remember. I say remember too often. Um, Jesus will go on to say that John is the greatest man who ever lived. Why would he say that? Well, I won't tell you now. But think about what his purpose is and why he came. Okay, let's jump right in. The first uh, birth we're going to learn about is John the Baptist's birth. So it says in verse 5, if you look with me in chapter 1 of Luke, in the days of Herod, king of Judea, it would be the end of his reign. He reigned from 37 to 4 BC. So toward the end of his reign, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. They both come from a priestly line. They come from a dignified line. They're unique kind of people. Verse 6 says, And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. just want to pause for a moment because the teacher in me can't resist because we were just in Romans not very long ago. And notice this guy is called Righteous. He obeys all the commands, and you're thinking to yourself, I didn't think anybody was righteous based upon what Romans says. And good job thinking that way, but the Bible does use it in another sense of, of relative righteousness. He's the godliest man around. She's the godliest woman around. They're, they're righteous, not, not inherently righteous where it makes them acceptable before God. And I know that's true, and I'm not reading into the text, and neither are you, because he's described as a priest. If you yourself are righteous, meaning you're a law keeper and God accepts you as you are, you don't need any sacrifices and you don't need any priests. So just know, be a good Bible reader, read it in context, pay attention, turn your brain on, and realize they're meant to be highlighted as godly people. But these aren't sinlessly perfect people. Just notice the difference. He's a priest. Look at verse 7. But they had no child. Because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. 
Verse 8 says, Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. Wow, this is a big deal. You're meant to see it as a big deal. Zechariah is chosen by lot to to be on duty during this time based upon what's going to happen with Messiah coming. It is his lucky day. And they can't pick up the smile on audio, so I have to talk about it. The smirk on my face. When I say, it's his lucky day. Well, in one sense, you say yes, because actually he was chosen by lot. And what comes up when you're, you're rolling dice? Drawing straws. It's the luck of the draw. And Zechariah has found his lucky day. But from a Christian perspective, we'd say it's his providential day. <laughs> because in light of the whole picture and what's happening here, it's not just his lucky day that he gets chosen. It's an extraordinary day. It's a significant day. It's a once-in-a-lifetime day. Back in that day, the way the priesthood worked, there would have been 24 different teams and they would do two-week shifts. Special holidays, Passover, things like that, they would have some more repetition. But amongst his group of priests that were on duty during this period of time, two would be chosen to go in on the day. He was one of those who got picked. And from what we know from extra biblical history, I'm not sure we find it anywhere in the Bible, but from extra biblical history, once you were chosen one time for this duty to go on the inside, your straw would never be in amongst the straws again. It's a once in a lifetime kind of thing. Luke's, Luke wants us to see the details of this. Something special is happening if he got chosen. Verse 10 says, And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. So Zechariah gets to go in as the priest, and he's going in the inner chamber, and it's extraordinary and unique. And as he goes in as the priest, priests represent people. The Old Testament priest is representing the people of Israel and the people are on the outside and they're praying outside as he's going to go pray inside. What do you think they're praying for? They're praying for perhaps lots of different things, but you know they're praying for deliverance. They're praying for salvation. They're, they're, they're praying uh, maybe the imprecatory judgment psalms uh, upon Herod the Great's head. But for sure, they're saying, God, Deliver us. We're your people. You made these promises to us. They're claiming the promises of God. They're they're perhaps reciting them, the promises of God on their scrolls. And they're praying, God, please send Messiah, the Deliverer, the Anointed One, the Christ. They may have been praying for other things, but without question, they're praying along those lines. They've been promised deliverance. They're praying that it would be now. And when we send the priest in, God, may you see fit. He's he's a righteous man, and his wife is too. They're they're godly people, and so they're representing us. We're sincere. Please, Lord, have this be the time. Like they probably prayed the year before, and the year before, and the year before, as they were accustomed of doing. 
This time it'll be different. Verse 11 says, And there appeared to him, that's Zechariah, he's on the inside, an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. Luke wants to get the details. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell on him, as we might imagine. Next verse. But the angel, we'll learn later, this is Gabriel the angel, Gabriel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. Stop there just for a moment. If that doesn't strike you as odd as far as the answer that the the angel gives, I think it should. I realize I'm ahead of you because I've had time to think about this all week. I don't think for a second Zechariah, the righteous man, was in there first and foremost on his prayer list. Lord, please give my postmenopausal wife a baby son. (laughs) A righteous man is not doing that. He certainly wasn't sent in there. The people on the outside weren't saying, oh yeah, you know, he's going to go in and he's going to... We know why he's in there because he needs a son. It's ridiculous. I'm not suggesting he didn't slip one of those in. (laughs) I mean, I'm not suggesting he and his wife hadn't been praying their whole life for that. Especially in this kind of culture where you need someone to take care of you. For sure they'd prayed for a son. Any believer would, especially in that culture. But he's sent in there to pray for the people. He's sent in there to pray for deliverance for rescue. He's sent in there with all, the, with all the people in representation with a messianic hope. When will the Christ come? When will justice be done on earth? When will the promises that were made even to David, let's back it even up further, but even the specific promises made to David, when will those promises be made true where there will be the greater David, the Messiah? Please, Lord. And Zechariah is told not to be afraid. And he's told that his wife Elizabeth will bear a son. You'll call his name John. What's so interesting is what's happening here. You've got a promise of a boy being born against all odds that will relate to the birth of Messiah. I mean, this is bonus round answered prayer. He and Elizabeth would never have imagined that their prayers would be answered. And they would be answered in a way they would have never, ever expected. Not only are they going to have that son, he is going to be the forerunner, the foreshadower, the one who gets the people ready for none other than the deliverer. It's cool to see it unfold. It's extraordinary. Verse 14 says, And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. Verse 15 is very important. And he will be great before the Lord. If you're an underliner, you want to underline that and remember that description. I won't tell you why yet, but Luke purposefully is describing him in this way, making sure he records what the angel says. He will be great before the Lord. And he will. 
Remember that description. Let's keep reading in the sentence in verse 15. And he must not drink wine or strong drink. That tells us he's going to be a little different. That wasn't the ordinary command for Jewish people. It's Nazaritish because a Nazarite vow called for that for a certain period of time, but you don't have a time limit here. So he's going to be holy, meaning distinct, unique. He's going to march to the beat of a different drummer. I mean, he doesn't tell him here that he's going to eat bugs, but he's going to. I mean, he's a prophet, a unique kind of prophet, not just an ordinary prophet, a unique kind of prophet. He is going to be special, this John. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit. Controlled by the Holy Spirit is the idea there. Even from his mother's womb. That's not ordinary. He'll be controlled by the Spirit from his mother's womb. This is one extraordinary baby. Verse 16. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him. Now we're talking about Messiah already. He will go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. He's the forerunner. He's the expectant one before the expectant one. He's the one that we heard about 400 years ago. Back in Malachi. If you want to turn to the last book of the Old Testament, right before Matthew, you'll see Malachi. If you can't find it and you found an Italian theologian named Malachi, it's actually Malachi. Okay? Malachi chapter 5, 4. He's the one. He's not the one, but he's the one. He's the one that would come and prepare the way. And what happened in an ancient world when you have royalty showing up? One would be sent before him, if not a whole crew would be sent before him. And what they would do is they'd get the roads ready. They they would make the paths straight. They would make the paths literally righteous, which is the idea. And they would prepare things so that the, the wheel didn't break because of the pothole or whatever it might be. You want to have a good road prepared so that they could they could come in as royalty. And John the Baptist is called to make the path straight. He's called to preach repentance, as we will see later, and call people to get ready. The king is showing up. Stop your slacking. Stop living like the devil, professing to be a believer. The king is showing up. This is going to be John's job. And Luke wants us to make sure that we know that this is all cha-ching, 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 according to plan. It may have been 400 years, but 400 years ago, this is how God said it was going to be. In Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, it says, Behold, I will send you Elijah. That tracks with the spirit and power of Elijah back in verse 17 of Luke. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with the decree of utter destruction. Back in chapter 3, verse 1 of Malachi, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way for me. Similar kind of talk. Similar statements are used later on in the New Testament regarding Christ's return. But what you don't see is a big distinction here at this point with Christ's first coming and his second coming. And you have one who comes in the spirit of Elijah, 
and the dots are getting connected here for us, it's, it's John the Baptist. He's the one. Back to Luke chapter 1. Put yourself in the priest's sandals or shoes. And you're thinking, wow, fulfillment is on the way. So it says in verse 18, look there again if, with me if you would at Luke chapter 1. And Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? Like you would and I would probably. For I am an old man and my, my wife is advanced in years. You know, I, I may be dumb, but I ain't stupid. I mean, I, go figure this one out. Verse 19, and the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news, this gospel news. You know, I'm Gabriel. You know, how, how can I know this to be true? Well, you know, you think that whatever just happened right here is a little bit extraordinary, right? I mean, didn't you read my name tag? Gabriel, Archangel. Well, being a little silly, but I mean, he could, he could say, Zechariah, I'm Gabriel. I'm the one that you learned about on the flannel graph at Sabbath school in Daniel chapter 9. I mean, you, you pretty much don't get higher on the ranking order. I'm Gabriel. That, that should be enough for you. But I, I don't fault him for saying, how, how, how could this be? Verse 20. And behold, you will be silent. And unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their name, in their time, excuse me. It would seem that he probably did recognize Gabriel enough to know that he was sent by God as an angel. The problem is he didn't believe it. Okay, now we go outside. How about verse 21? And the people were waiting for Zechariah as you and I would have been. And, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. Just again, to, to feel the, the flow of things. This is a narrative, a historic narrative. Just kind of put yourself in the scenario. And you're Zechariah. You know? And here you are. And Okay, charades. I've got to explain this to people. This is a pretty weird charade. So I've got to explain who Gabriel is. I saw Gabriel, you know, snow angel. Uh, you know, I don't know. Daniel, angel, Gabriel, you know, <sighs> lion, you're doing all these things. Draw number nine, um, pregnant, postmenopausal wife. Uh, I don't know what to do with that. Um, I'm going to have a baby. No, better not. No. And it's all tied to Messiah. Anointed. He'll put some oil on his head. <laughs> You're going, oh man, what is with this guy? It would be hard. It would be very hard. But we just need to realize and know that it's, it's, it's extraordinary what's happening. I mean, you can't make this stuff up. If I were writing it, I wouldn't write it this way. Oh, the one, the one descriptor I forgot was a Baptist. How's he going to explain he's a Baptist? And my wife will give birth to a Baptist. Oh, you know, Baptist, never, never mind. I thought it was maybe worth it. He would yell a lot. Wow! Yell a lot. And she's going, what the heck is this guy doing, man? Glad you only get picked once in your life. 
All right, a little comic relief along the way. These are real people. Verse 23 says, And when his time for service was ended, he went to his home. I'll bet he did. <laughs> I bet he ran. Verse 24, After these days his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. I really like that. I think you should too in verse 25 because the Lord is going to take away her reproach that she didn't even realize. He's going to take that reproach away in a way that is beyond I never had a son. Because he's going to be the Savior. Jesus is. And John is going to announce his coming. I, I, I love the way Luke Highlight some of these kinds of nuanced things. Take away my reproach among the people. The Lord has done that for me. And earlier when it was good news, it was gospel news. Well, it wasn't the good news, but this is good news in anticipation of the good news. There's gospel anticipation, gospel fingerprints all over the place. Now let's move on to the foretelling of the next unique birth, and that would be the birth of Jesus. So John is great. But now we're going to see something even more extraordinary. Verse 26 says, In the sixth month of, excuse me, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. You can write John chapter 1, verse 46 in your margin if you want. Could anything good come out of Nazareth? So this is the wrong side of the tracks. Okay, this is, this is Nazareth, you, you told jokes about Nazareth. Okay. Nazareth is, is a dumpy town today. It was a real dumpy town back in the day. Very small population. If you, were, if, you, if you had a good reputation and were godly, you certainly didn't want to live there. It was too much on the outskirts, wrong side of the tracks, too many Gentiles around. And so when we read Nazareth, and we go, oh yeah, that's biblical, that's good. Nazareth Bible Church. Yeah, bad Bible church. <laughs> the wrong Bible church. <laughs> the no good Bible church. That would be what it would mean. Here comes this angel sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. What in the world is Gabriel doing in Nazareth? That's pretty odd. It's meant to be odd. Verse 27, to a virgin betrothed, so she's committed to be married, though not yet, to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. Extra biblical sources would say betrothal, average, around 13, 14, could be older, young. She's young. I liked what one person said about her in this context. She's a nobody in a nothing town in the middle of nowhere. I mean, again, if I were making this stuff up, I would say, and she would be, uh, and he would be born to Caiaphas, the high priest's daughter, dignified. Nazareth? But I'm not writing it, and all of this is supposed to be according to a plan that's already been prophesied about, and it needs to be Nazareth. Okay, then. 
Verse 28, And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. It's a polite, nice, bold greeting to Mary. Now, I don't want to get too bogged down in this, but, but I do need to pause for a second and realize that some of you, when you hear that, you don't hear it that way, based upon your religious background. When you hear it, you hear it a different way. You don't hear, greetings, O favored one. You hear, greetings, the one who is full of grace. Mary, full of grace. If you come from a Roman Catholic background, this is where you get that statement when you say, Mary, full of grace. And I don't want to pick on anybody uh, this morning, but I do want to say, there's a reason why the translation I read from says, greetings, O favored one, and not greetings, O full of grace one. The full of grace mindset comes from the Latin Vulgate. The New Testament was not written in Latin originally. It was written in Greek. So the Greek text does not say or even come close to saying, Mary is full of grace. No, the intent from the Greek text is, Mary is the one who receives the grace. She's favored by God. She's graced by God. She is the recipient, not the giver of. And it really does make a difference in the long run. Here, Mary is receiving favor from God that she doesn't deserve from Nazareth. She's not the one who is full of grace, who's going to give it to people as some sort of um, co-mediator, to use technical terminology. No, there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, according to what Timothy says, which would fit here. Mary is a girl from Nazareth who is not deserving or inherently good in and of herself. She has received grace from God. She's received something. And the text will go on to confirm that. And I thought it was worth mentioning so that we can have clarity based upon what the Bible actually says and not just from tradition. Verse 29 says, But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. Verse 30 says, because by the way, again, verse, verse 29, you're going, yeah, you would think that too, based upon where she's from. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. You're not the distributor of God's favor. You have found favor with God. You, it comes from a word for grace. You found grace from God. You've, you, you've received something that you would never earn. This is, this is a good thing. This is not a judgment thing. Verse 31 says, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Jesus means what? Anybody know? It means Savior. It means God saves. In Matthew chapter 1, it says, uh, You call him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. So, Mary, you're going to have a baby. Okay, so far, so good. And you're going to name him Jesus, which means God saves. She's probably okay with that too. I mean, this is exciting. She's betrothed to be married, so in one sense you might expect this other than the fact that Gabriel showed up to tell me. I mean, so far, so good. Then verse 32. Remember I told you to underline a verse earlier regarding John? Well, now I want you to underline its, its, its friend, its complement. Verse 32 says, He will be great 
Well, John was great because of what the Lord did for him. But here we have someone who's great on a different level in 32. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. Whoa, big difference. John is great because of some, something God is going to give to him. And now Jesus is great because he's the son. He's, he's extraordinarily great. We've got lowercase g and capital G great. He's great because he's the son And then it says, keep reading in verse 32, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. Whoa, this is really great. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom and of his kingdom there will be no end. And you can write in your margin 2 Samuel chapter 7 verse 13 if you're writing things down because that's what this is taken from. I mean, here we are, 21st century, most of us Gentiles, who are like, well, this sounds pretty great. It's even greater than you realize because this is taken from 2 Samuel 7, which is great when it comes to prophecy. We're not talking about chump change prophecy. We're talking about like the granddaddy of them all. He's going to be the one. He's going to be the anointed one. He's going to be the Messiah. He's going to be the Savior. By the way, those mean the same thing. Anointed one means Messiah. They're interchangeable because you would anoint a king, Messiah. And in the New Testament, Messiah is translated Christ. So every time you read your Bible, it's not Jesus Christ as in first name and last name, right? Ha, 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 ha. When you read your Bible, Old Testament Messiah, Mashiach, translated in the New Testament, Christ, talking about the same thing. What is the same thing? It's anointed one, unique king. The king, get this, the king that will be the fulfillment of God's promise to David. That will never end. A rulership, a throne that will never end. 2 Samuel 7 made that promise. And then David died. And everybody knew that it wasn't going to be Solomon bringing fulfillment. Because Solomon died. Like all the other kings afterward. But there's this promise that one would come in the line of David who would rule and reign as a sovereign, as a king, as an anointed one, as a Christ, as a Messiah, who would be the ultimate Messiah, the ultimate deliverer, the, the ultimate Christ. And here Mary is being told that her son will be the one. And when you're talking about God's promise to David, there, there are a lot of important things in the Bible. I think the whole Bible is important. But there's important and there's important. And there are those high points where everything else is sort of supporting and building around. And and, and the covenant, the agreement, the promise that God made to David is one of those flashpoints. Because it's related to the covenant, the promise God made to Abraham. Another flashpoint. Which is also related on the other side to the new covenant of Jeremiah 31. And And they all come together and they all come to fulfillment in the Messiah. And here we have Messiah is Jesus. And Mary's going to give birth to him. Wow. He's the one. He's the one. He's the one upon which all history turns. Redemptive and otherwise. He's the extraordinary one. By the way, 2 Samuel 7, 13 says, He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Which is much like our verse. 
It'll have no end. Now, I said everything was okay with Mary so far. I mean, so far, in a sense, so good. I mean, she's going to be enthralled. She's going to be amazed. She's going to be astounded. But somehow it might seem like it could possibly happen. Got some questions, but here we have them in verse 34. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I'm a virgin? Um, excuse me, I just have one question. <laughs> I mean, I have a question about how this could be because I'm from Nazareth and that other kind of stuff. And But um, I, I'm a virgin. Um, I haven't had sex with a man. So can you just kind of fill me in on how this is going to unfold and help me out here? You'd ask too. Verse 35 says, And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is is the sixth month with her, who is called barren, for nothing is impossible with God. So let's at least start with Elizabeth, who is beyond childbearing age and she's pregnant she has been for six months extraordinary but now we're talking about a whole other kind of extraordinary because here there's no Zechariah involved there's no Joseph involved yes you are going to conceive and you're going to give birth and you're a virgin and by the way, let's remind ourselves that this is tied even as we saw in verse 35 at the end because he's going to be the son of God. That's why it has to be something unique. The Messiah, Savior, can't come from within. Within a sinful lot like us, he's got to come from outside to be the spotless lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And let me pause for a moment and say, if someone suggests to you that the virgin conception and birth of Jesus is uh, negotiable to Christianity, you shouldn't believe them. It's right here, spelled out. And by the way, if you say it's negotiable, anything's negotiable. And remember, Christianity is based upon the supernatural intervention of God. Here's what happens. We get embarrassed because people say, well, you know, you can't prove that in a laboratory, and then Christians, at least professing Christians, are like, well, you know, so maybe it doesn't really have to mean that. And, uh, you know, but I still believe, what, in a resurrection? Are you kidding me? It's just a matter of time. You won't believe that either. And... You won't be a Christian. Christianity is based upon the realities of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. And he wasn't a mere man. He was extraordinary to the point where he was virgin conceived and virgin born. And we shouldn't be ashamed of that. I'm saying that right up front. I'm a Christian. I believe these things. The bodily resurrection of Jesus. 
I'm thankful that most, and this may change, it's not always the case, I'm thankful that most churches and pastors who have denied the virgin birth of Jesus, I'm thankful most of those churches are empty. They should be empty. Our hope, friends, is based upon something supernatural. Our hope is based upon something that is not irrational. Luke is trying to give a rational account, describing things, real things in real history, but we're talking about a God who is personal and who is involved in His world and raised His Son from the dead. His Son. Not just a guy who was born of a guy named Joseph and Mary. It's extraordinary. We need to remember that. So we've got the older, dignified Elizabeth and the teenager Mary, and they're both pregnant. We're going to need a whole new edition of what to expect when you're expecting. (laughs) When it's biologically impossible and biologically impossible. Verse 38 says, And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. All right, she's in. What do you say? What are you supposed to say? That's a good answer. That's a right answer. My question for you now is, then what did she do? Well, we're going to read and see, but what would you do? <laughs> You're going, you know, uh, Mom and Dad, um, we need to have a meeting. Uh, I got some explaining to do. You see, there was this angel. He was Gabriel. Um, it's a pretty tough go. These are real people. Um, and Joseph, could we meet at the synagogue where we could... Um, pull the scroll of Isaiah 7 just so I can show you that it's prophesied that I would be a virgin. That would be really helpful. I think it's Isaiah 7, 14, last time I checked. But, you know, they didn't have verses back then, so. What Mary does is she gets out of town. She's going to go talk to somebody who can relate, and that would be Elizabeth. Verse 39 says, In those days Mary arose and went with haste, into the hill country, to the town of Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby John, the baby John it would be, leapt in her womb. And Elizabeth Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. She was controlled by the Holy Spirit, something extraordinary. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. 43, and why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord, that's like Psalm 110 Messianic-ish, the mother of my Lord should come to me. I love what's happening there. We'll get back to verse 44 in a second, but I love what's happening because think about it. If you're Elizabeth, you can't help but be preoccupied for six months with your baby. You're going to have a boy. You're going to have a son. This is amazing and extraordinary. You've praised God for it, yes. And, and you can see that maybe somehow this is related to Messiah. But it's been about John. But now Mary shows up with Jesus and she responds the right way. It's not so much about her baby. I mean, she's, she's, she's mentoring that baby in her womb the right way. Because that's how John's going to be. 
is not about John. It's about Jesus. And she's ahead of the curve here. 44 says, For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. She's commended. Here we have, we have, we have Old Testament world in the room. The Old Testament prophet, really, John. New Testament world, new covenant fulfiller, Jesus. It's no wonder weird things are happening in wombs. History is shifting and history is turning and there isn't anything ordinary about either baby. One is great and one is great. And so we would expect great things to be happening amidst them. The application for the day is not for us to look and see how much more virtuous Mary was than Zechariah. I'm not saying we couldn't go there a little bit. But that's not bur- the Luke of the, that's not the Luke of burden. <laughs> that's not the burden of Luke. Frankly, Bible commentators mislead us when they want to spend page after page after page talking about the comparison of the virtues of Mary versus the virtues of Zechariah. The point of the whole thing ultimately ends up being what Luke started out to do, and that is to raise your level of understanding, to help you understand the history better so that you might have certainty about these things that were done in real time and real space in history so that you might know that Jesus is the Christ. The application is that. The application is that you would know that Jesus is the Christ. Oh, yeah, let's learn something from Mary, though, as we will see next time in what's called the Magnificat. So you worship. So you worship. That's the right response. Father, thank you so much for the ability we have to worship because of what Christ has done. We're, we're blessed people because we understand that it doesn't end here. This is just the beginning. Because Jesus would be the Savior, even as His namesake indicates. And so help us as men and women, uh, help us as those who are boys and girls, to see Jesus better to have a greater understanding so that the understanding might lead to heart change so that we might be the kind of worshipers you've called us to be, that our confidence today would not be in ourselves, but our confidence today would be in the Lord Jesus Christ, the fulfillment of the salvation promises you've made. We pray in his name. Amen.